we're in the third week of Advent, and uh, you may wonder why the third candle's pink. And often, kind of traditionally, it's pink because uh, this week is the week of joy. Uh, each candle that represents a different theme. You've got peace and love and joy and hope. And uh, how appropriate. I felt a certain sense of joy this morning. How about you? Yes. In our worship time? Very good. This is uh, Isaiah's fourth and final servant song. And uh, he describes the servant, which is a God's chosen person that's going to make things right in the world. And so we discover, as we read through the, through the book, this is Jesus. But God is uh, going to save his world through this servant. And it's no less than God himself coming to do it. He enters our world, and what we discover here is that God himself is going to take on sin and death. He's going to conquer them in order to bring us life. And God's going to offer his righteousness to you and to me because of what he's going to do on the cross. So this morning, it's, uh, we're right to the very heart of the gospel. This is right to the very core of the Christian faith. And the issue that God wants to address here is our sin issue. It's our sinful rebellion. Now, some of us may not feel like we are a very rebellious sort of person. But what the Bible means by sin and rebellion is any attempt we make to kind of be the God of our own life. Any time that we stress our own autonomy and say, I'm going to decide what's good and evil for myself, thank you very much. And we act as though there's no uh, moral uh, standard of good and evil outside of ourselves, when we ignore that and say, I'm just going to do whatever I want, we act out in our own sense of uh, being God, trying to prove God, trying to be God, trying to not act according to what he would say and pretend there's no moral lawgiver. And because of that, all sorts of terrible things happen. As we act out in that way, it can look really good for a time, but usually, sooner than later, it ends in suffering, and it ends in evil, and it ends in idolatry, uh, and it usually will end in oppression of someone else. God uh, enters into the mess of our human rebellion out of his great love and says, as messed up as you all are, I still deeply, deeply love you. I think of God's heart as sort of the heart that a parent might have to a child that's kind of left, and, uh, left home, you know, abandoned the family, and has no care for anyone anymore. So I'm just going to do whatever I want, just to do it on my own. Maybe you've had children in that place, or some of you know a family where someone's just kind of left, and there's heartache that comes up with that, and there's relational damage, all sorts of stuff. And that's that's the situation here in, in the Bible: is that God enters into loving relationship with us, has created us for this, and yet we shun him. Um, we say, no, thank you. I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to live my life on my own. Instead of giving up on us, God comes after us. And that's kind of the rescue mission of the story of the Bible. It's the whole kind of conflict and the resolution that the Bible comes to. So today Isaiah kind of narrows down on that and says, through Jesus, God is going to come and he's going to come as a servant. He's not going to come and sort of force everything, force all the people to love him. Because as soon as you force someone to love you, guess what? It's not real love. Love demands that it, it has a choice, that there's a free will involved, or else it's not real love. And so God is going to demonstrate his own love to us and invite us 
come back into building a relationship with him. That's God's heart for you. That's God's heart for the world. God's going to do that by becoming a servant, not forcing it, but by demonstrating his love to us in such a remarkable way, which is to die in our place. And by doing that, Jesus opens up a new way to God. This passage has kind of three sections to it. So if your Bible's open, if you look at Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 52 and then into Isaiah 53. But the first part, kind of that first uh, verses 13 of 52 and onward, uh, talks a lot about the suffering that the servant's going to experience. The suffering that, that Jesus in his innocence is going to take on as he deals with this sin issue, this rebellion issue in our hearts. And then it moves on to kind of the, the fact of the matter, which is that Jesus is actually going to take on our sin for himself. He's going to bear our own sins. He's not just going to suffer because of our own sin. He's going to take on the sin himself. And he's going to die in our place. That's kind of verse 4 and onward. And then finally, when we get to the end of all that, we realize the whole point of this, the whole point of Jesus taking on uh, our suffering and taking on our sin is that he is going to defeat the power of sin and then through his own righteousness grant us righteousness back to God. So we get kind of this movement of, of suffering uh, and sin and sacrifice that Jesus makes for us. But then what it's all for is this victory. It's going to defeat sin. It's going to invite you back to new life. So let's jump into that. Uh, first is rejection. Is rejection. Look back at Isaiah 52 verse 14. He says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marked beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that the children of mankind. This is a little bit graphic. Uh, what he's saying is the servants, the servants would be so disfigured, you're not going to recognize him. He's going to be such a mess in the beatings and the sufferings that he'll experience uh, that he, he won't even hardly look human anymore. That's how kind of grim it's getting. Jesus is going to be beaten into a mess of human flesh. He's going to take it. And the passage points all the way to the Gospels where we, we see the kind of intense suffering that Jesus endures. And it's not just a physical suffering that Jesus encounters. There's kind of an emotional suffering as well, isn't there? If you think about having your closest friends, the ones that you've entrusted your life to, the ones you've shared your secrets with, uh, the ones you told things that you wouldn't tell anyone else, your closest friends, your circle of friends that imagine, they all abandon you. You know, these ones that you poured your life with, you, you fought together day after day for three years, and they all just leave. They all just leave. There's a certain kind of emotional betrayal and abandonment that Jesus experiences. And then you get this physical suffering as well, right? He gets a brutal whipping, which in, in itself is enough to kill a person. And then he receives the cross. The cross is an instrument of execution, right? It's a torture device. It's designed by the Romans specifically to make your death as painful as possible. Uh, not only to get nailed to it, uh, but then you're left hanging, slowly suffocating. And often they come along and break your legs so you would die before quickly, so you couldn't kind of hold yourself up anymore. And of course they come to do that to Jesus at one point in his own pastor. Uh, is he terrible? It's, it's terrible. The cross is, is grim. Uh, that you know, our word excruciating literally means, like excrucis, literally means out of the cross. Excruciating pain means pain out of the cross. Like, this is the worst kind of pain 
intense physical torture. So not only is Jesus facing emotional suffering on our behalf, as his friends abandon him, his relationships are broken with people, he experiences physical suffering on our behalf, intense physical suffering, of beatings and whippings, of mockery, and finally of death. But perhaps worst of all, the greatest suffering of all, is what he experiences on the cross between him and his Father. Is that Jesus, the Son of God, who lives in communion with God the Father, he takes on the sins of the whole world, and in that moment, as the sins of all humanity is poured upon the Son, the Father turns his face away. And for the first time in all existence, of all eternity, the communion, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is centered. This is why you have Jesus cry out, oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiences hell in a very real way at that moment, the separation from God. And he does that for you and for me. That intimate relationship with the Father is broken. And he experiences the full wrath of God on human sin, which he himself has taken on. He doesn't deserve this in any way. He's taking the punishment for you and for me in such a way that he's, he's giving up his, his intimate relationship with the Father. So there's an emotional suffering that the servant Jesus is experiencing. There's a physical suffering. There's also a spiritual suffering as well. But friends, this is the surprising way that Jesus brings about God's kingdom. He takes the full force of human sin and people with that. And you know, this, this passage about his appearance is so marred beyond human semblance. You know, our sin is really ugly. Our sin is really ugly. And I think if, if you've ever experienced this, I know I have, is there's moments where I've been, I've been really down about things I've done. I feel really guilty about it. I feel with regret about it. And you feel really, really broken up inside. Like you just feel really low. You ever experienced this? Where you just you feel really not good, really unclean in some ways. There's this ugliness to sin. Jesus becomes on the outside what we with our sin look like on the inside. He takes it. And he lets it kill him, and by doing that, he breaks the power of sin forever. And so he becomes repulsive in appearance that he might become beautiful and full of glory. And he does that because his rejection is going to be our redemption, folks. The level of his rejection is going to blossom into a beauty of life and salvation for you. So that's the second point. Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected in all these ways, in these terrible, terrible ways for you. But more than that, he's going to die in your place and it's going to bring redemption. Look at uh, chapter 53, look at verses 4 and 6. Let me read these for you. Surely he has borne our griefs. Listen to, listen to the way Isaiah kind of uh, uses the language. Here. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. God is the one allowing this to happen because of his love for you. He was pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds were healed. And all we like sheep have gone straight, we turn every one to our own way. That's a human rebellion. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus, without any support from anyone, or everyone's left yet, there's no person alongside helping him along. With no support and no understanding from anyone else, he willingly takes on the grief and the sorrow and the sin of all humankind, including you and me. 
He's going to allow that sin to kill him. And he does this willingly. And the Bible frames this as a sacrifice, that he dies as a sacrifice. And Israel, they were well aware of animal sacrifice. And it's kind of a weird thing for us. But a person who had committed all sorts of wrongdoings, they could have an animal kind of sacrificed on their behalf. The idea was that the sin that the person had within them, all the sin and the evil and the stuff uh, that separates us from God, could be transferred over to the animal. The animal would be killed and die in the person's place. It was a way of making restitution for sin without killing the sinner. So the sinner could stay alive, but something has to die. And this whole concept of animal sacrifice is worked right into the, the whole worldview of, of the Israelites. They have this understanding that sin is this serious, something has to die, blood must be shed to make this right. It's that bad. I think sometimes our understanding of sin is, oh, it's a bit of a oops, but it doesn't really mean anything. Folks, sin is so serious. I think perhaps the best metaphor we use is it's, it's terminal. It's like cancer. Uh, it's that invasive, and it's that destructive, and it's, it's that bad. You know, when you get that news uh, that someone has cancer, and you've got that news, it's, it's terrible, right? So you, you know the end could very well be inside. And that is our condition, folks, and our sin. That's yours and mine. Instead of animal sacrifice going on and on and on and on, which only ever kind of atoned for sin temporarily, sort of, never really dealt with the core of the thing, never really rescues us out of sin, Jesus comes, he takes all of the sin, all of the evil of the whole world on himself, and he dies to it, so it can be broken forever. And that's why, that's why no more animal sacrifice, right? Jesus has become the ultimate sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. And that means now, if in your life you are in a place of going, I just keep on messing up. I just keep on giving into this. I know I shouldn't. I just, I struggle with this. You need to be encouraged and know that what Jesus has done on the cross is more powerful than whatever kind of messed up thing is happening in your life right now. You can give that to him and his death is sufficient to cover over that entirely and completely. You don't need to have any guilt or shame but whatever kind of stuff has gone on in your life ever again, Jesus has taken the pain and the guilt and the sin of your life, and he's died to it, so you don't have to. He's taken that punishment upon himself. That's why, the, that's why the Christian message is good news, right? It's good news because it's no longer about me trying to make myself right before God. There's no amount of stuff I can do to make myself holy. It's not about that ever. The Christian faith is never about you trying to be good enough to get God on your side. It's just not about that at all. It's absolutely about grace. It's about saying, I, in myself, can't do a thing about this. I'm, I'm a wreck. I'm so screwed up. I'm, I'm really, it's really bad. And, and the Bible tells me that the punishment for all this means death. I'm worthy of death. And of course, Everyone around me dies eventually. We're aware of death. The Christian faith, the good news of the gospel, is that in Jesus, the power of death has been defeated. And that sense of guilt and shame and condemnation that we can so easily experience and so easily kind of take back and put on ourselves 
That's been broken. That has no power over us anymore because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Isaiah says God's going to come himself. He's going to become that lamb, that, that, that atoning sacrifice. He's going to take it all on himself. He's going to suffer in our place. He's going to lay his life down once and for all. First Peter puts it this way. He says, Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. In his body, in fact, he carries our sins right in his very self, right in his body, on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what's live for what's Christ. Friends, God loves you so much. He doesn't want to give up on you. He loves you so much that he sends the Son and is willing to experience that severing of communion within himself between the Father and the Son so that he can win you back to him. He's willing to lay down his own life for you. The demands for sin, that, that punishment for sin, that's death, that God has put in place, that God demands. God says, this is, this is what sin deserves, but I'm not going to let you have to deal with it at all. I'm going to come and satisfy the object of my own life. I'm going to come and be the one on whom I write this for, so it's not for him. He comes and takes it himself. This would be like, say you own like millions of dollars, say you're being sued for something. And the person that you owed it to said, it's okay. I'm going to pay myself back. So you don't have to do with it. That's what God does for us. He takes that fullness of sin, that fullness of what we owe upon himself. And he dies so that our sin can be removed. We can live a new life in Him. This is just the core of the gospel message, folks. This is what Christian faith is. Let me read to you from Mark 15, verse 33. This is the death of Jesus. And I mean, it just so obviously points us out. It said, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness of the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He talked about it. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran to him, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him, saying, Drink. So they kind of take the sponge, Jesus died on the cross, take the sponge, kind of stick it on the stick, and they lift it up to him to try and uh, wet his lips so he can talk. Because he's totally harsh. And they say, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two top to bottom. And when the centurion, Roman centurion, helping crucify him, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, willingly giving up his life, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. In Mark's gospel, the one who declares who Jesus is, is the, the Roman centurion, is the one to declare. It's this most amazing scene, folks, that as Jesus willingly gives up his spirit, at that very moment, it's like these two events kind of come rushing together. Jesus is bearing all of human sins, cut off from his father, right? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this heartbreaking moment. At that very same instance, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. This is the, the curtain that separates people from God in the temple. 
We are not allowed to come to God's presence. That's what I, that's what I heard. Think about. The moment that Jesus dies, bearing your sin in mind, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. There, there's no way to get up there to cut it. It's torn in two from top to bottom. And what's happening here is that somehow in Jesus' death, a way is being opened for you and I to come back into the presence of God. That at the moment that Jesus dies, that temple curtain is torn in two, and the presence of God now comes rushing out into the world. And now there's no more separation between us and God because of the cross. It's an incredible thing that happens, folks. That as he dies, that temple curtain is ripped, top to bottom. Who's ripping it? Let's, like, yeah, it's not me. It's a thick curtain, too. Like, you have to, it's not like little lace veil. It's like heavy duty. Like, I think they say you can't even pierce it with a sword. It's so thick. And so, like, this is serious. This is like harder than tearing a phone book in half, right? Like, this is a serious curtain. When Jesus dies, that way of life and relationship with God is opened up for us, folks. And Isaiah foreshadowed this centuries, centuries earlier in this passage we read today. A uh, pastor that I was listening to, Adam Lowe, puts it this way, so good. He said, Jesus would bear all sin so we could be forgiven. He would pay the price for sin so we would not be condemned. He would transfer his righteousness so the unrighteous could be set right. He would forsake his relationship with the Father so we could become children of God. He would drink the cup of wrath so we could be spared death. He would swap his place in glory so that we could inherit it. He would die for the ungodly so that we could be reconciled to him. He died as a ransom for many so that for all who trusted him could have peace with God. Jesus resolutely set out refusing to save himself in order that we would be saved. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So friends, he's rejected in every way possible. Human abandonment, physical torture, severing of his, of his relationship with God. He, the fullness of our sin uh, is, is carried on him. He dies for it. It's a real death, a real atonement. So that that new way God can be opened up, and so that we can receive his righteousness. See, for Jesus' death uh, to actually deal with sin, it also has to be a defeat of death itself. There's this connection uh, in the Bible, right, from the very beginning of sin and death. They just kind of go hand in hand. The wages of sin is death. You hear verses like this. Um, Jesus can take on the fullness of sin and die to it. That doesn't, that doesn't defeat death. The resurrection defeats death. And that's why we can say, I believe Jesus died for my sins. That's not the whole story. If Jesus just dies for your sins and stays dead, that doesn't, that's not really great. That doesn't defeat death. It defeats sin. It doesn't defeat death. But the resurrection is absolutely central to the Christian faith. Uh, and it's a historical, physical, literal resurrection. I'll tell you right now. No one would die for a pretend spiritual resurrection. And you will hear this sort of thing. Well, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead because he didn't really die. It's a real death. Like, you've got four independent witnesses telling you he's dead. You've got the guy who doesn't like him telling you he's dead, right? He really comes to life again. There's no reason for any of the disciples to make this up or to die for it. He comes to life again. 
the best, the best answer to the evidence we have for the writings of the New Testament is that it's actually happened. To say that these exist because someone's put them together and it's a good fairy tale, it doesn't hold out, folks. The fact that Jewish people who believe in, who are monotheistic, who believe in one God, could come to a place in their own story where they believe in, in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. By that they mean he is God and they worship him as God, which is absolutely incredible. The fact that they would do that tells you that something so significant happened in their own story that it made them rethink the very essence of God himself. That it had to be Yahweh who came to them. There's no other reason for why these New Testament writings could exist at all. You can stake your life on this, folks. And there may be lots of things you can hear of people saying, you know, you can't really trust the New Testament, you can't really trust the writings of Scripture. You can bow into that, and you can do all the work and think through it really well, and there's lots of good books I could recommend to you about how this works. But at the end of the day, friends, this is trustworthy. And historically, there's no other good reason for why this would happen. If all the disciples are having a shared hallucination about Jesus dying, and they decide they think it's real, and they'll die for it, that's great. That dies in one generation. Right? The next generation is not going to die because, you know, so-and-so had a vision or a hallucination about Jesus rising from the dead. No way. Millions upon millions of followers. I think we're, what, over a billion people are Christians, have become Christians? I mean, in, over the course of human history, we're talking over billions. Like, so many. There's a lot of Christians, folks, over the long history of the church in all the continents. The fastest growing church is China today. They've tried doing it without God and they realized we need God. And the church is flourishing. Friends, the, the thing that makes the most sense is that this is really true. It's, it's the only reason. It's the only way you can kind of satisfy why these sorts of writings exist. You can look around at the church and you can see that the Spirit of God is alive at work today in people's hearts. But friends, Christianity is not primarily about your feelings. Your emotions matter. God made you as a whole person. Your emotions, how you feel, is deeply important. But friends, Christianity is not about whether you feel a certain way. It is about saying, God has come objectively in Christ and died for me. This is a historical fact that I can stake my life on. This is a logical, reasonable thing. It's not just by the fancy. Jesus has come and died. But he's died in this way, fulfilling all of these prophecies so that your sin can put to death. And we read here that it's we become righteous. Look at Isaiah 53. Look at all the verses 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. How is he going to see? He just died. There's an implied resurrection here. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be encountered righteously. He shall bear their iniquities. Friends, God has borne your iniquities and transferred his righteousness to you. And that is possible whenever you come by faith repent of sin and say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm done. I need you, Lord. In that very moment, just as we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, opens that way for God's life to 
come into the world and, and relationship to be made and made with him. It's that temple of curtain is torn. In the same way, when we come to the Father, when we come and repent and say, Lord, I believe you come and die for my sins, in that same moment, we receive new life and salvation. And our sins are covered over. No more brought against us. He's borne that on himself. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God. He transfers his life and righteousness to us. Friends, this is the most important news in the history of the human world. Absolutely. That there is an answer out of all the sin and evil that plagues us, that plagues us personally, plagues our society, the answer is Jesus Christ. And that is why for Christians, the cross is no longer a picture of death, but the death of death. There's a picture of God that come and dealt with our sin minds so that we can live. So his cross is also empty. He's coming as alive. He's alive and he grants us his salvation, his righteousness as we turn to him. And if you're longing for your life to have meaning, folks, I don't know where you're at this morning, but if you're longing for life to have meaning, and you're longing for a sense of God's love, and you're longing to get rid of the sin and the issues and stuff in your life, the simple answer is to come to Jesus. He's born the whole weight of human sin upon himself. He's let it kill him. By doing so, he defeats its power. By his resurrection, he overturns death itself. Death has been defeated. When Christ comes again in glory, it will be ultimately destroyed. Friends, as I, as I was preparing for this and reading through this passage in Isaiah, it just it brings me full circle back to why we as Christians can have faith in life. It all comes back to Jesus. Isaiah's prophesying this hundreds of years before. And Jesus comes and lives it out, fulfills it. Friends, that's the good news for you. Your sin is no longer a price that you have to pay. God's covered it through Christ. 